From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's April 13th, 2016. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today we're featuring a conversation that followed our recent sneak preview of Louder Than Bombs, a moving family drama starring Gabriel Byrne, Jesse Eisenberg, and Isabel Uppert. It's the English-language debut from acclaimed Norwegian filmmaker Joachim Trier, whose first two features, Reprise and Oslo August 31st, both screened in New Director's New Films. Trier and surprise guest Gabriel Byrne joined us last week ahead of the film's official release last Friday. But before we go to that, we'll go to the Q&A following our recent screening of the new horror thriller Green Room, which opens in select theaters this weekend. Writer-director Jeremy Saulnier's follow-up to 2013's Blue Ruin is a brutal nail-biter about a punk rock band trapped backstage after witnessing a murder. The film features a disturbing performance from Patrick Stewart as the malevolent white supremacist who leads the grim standoff. Saulnier joined the Film Society's Rufus Duram for a Q&A following our sneak preview of the film. Let's go now to that conversation. Thank you. It's sort of disrespectful to cut the credits short, but they're still scrolling, but we have another screening in Brooklyn we yes. run to. So this is gonna be a short and, and dirty Q&A. Uh, so I think I, I just wanna, I think, start things off, and your last movie uh, was much smaller in budget, and typically, well, I guess the trend now in Hollywood or filmmaking is you make a very small budget movie and then Marvel or DC or somebody picks you up to be like revamp of a property or big budget and yet you chose to make an arguably bigger movie than Blue Ruin but still not like enormous budget and can you talk about what drove that decision uh, to sort of instead of like you know work oh, for sure. Fox I mean, or something it's like like most of my movies it was panic <laughs> it was you know I had opportunities um, there was expectations after Blue Ruin, and I didn't quite find the material I was looking for. I mean, I, had, I would love to do big movies eventually. Sure. I love studio movies in the 1970s and 80s. <laughs> but um, I, I kind of panicked. and was like, ah, i got to write something, because I'm at the tail end of the festival circuit for Blue Ruin. And um, what I did was just take an idea that had been bouncing around my head for over a decade. So this is kind of like an emotional regression from Blue Ruin. I, I loved what we did with Blue Ruin. I didn't want to replicate that. I didn't want to try and top it. I wanted to kind of do this sort of homage to the films that I loved growing up and embrace the fact that I'm going to make a badass exploitation movie and um, have some kind of archive of my, my, my brief foray into the world of punk and hardcore. Because if you look at me, you wouldn't guess. You know, but I was there in the 90s. Um, I have one witness, where's Eli? There you go, he was there with me. He could do, he was kind of gorilla, did lots of backflips. We were in the same shows in the 1990s and it was a huge part of my life and it was a way to really kind of have an outlet and expression that was artistic and physical and not be part of a sports team. Um, and I was a skate punk in the 80s and it's kind of just, I was that person but as I found myself living in Brooklyn with three beautiful daughters and going to get pastries at the cafe, I was like, shit, no one's ever gonna know. <laughs> so let me just archive what I know and then, you know, up it a bit. Uh, okay, so talking about upping it a bit, I guess. Uh, so I, in order to prep for this, I watched this the other night with my fiance and at the arm cutting scene she was like nope I'm out I'm done that's good uh, I, uh, the but she'll watch the Hunger Games right yes where 24 will. kids yeah. get slaughtered yeah. for sport yeah. and no one gives a shit or Batman versus Superman where Batman blows away people with machine guns you know? there you like, go because who cares yeah exactly uh, I mean I think I, I do want to talk about you know there's the, this real uh, like the violence in this film is clearly harking back to exploitation films and sort of the structure is similar to something like, you know, I don't know, Assault on Precinct 13 or something. Uh, 
But there's also this aspect of this humanization and like this, like, I, I don't know, like a movie like Compliance, where there's like, there's this human aspect of like why people are making these decisions behind the violence. And it's, it's much more brutal. And I program scary movies here and watch slashers all day and don't have a problem. But watching this movie, I'm like, oh, oh. Yeah, uh, I make it hurt. Yeah, was that, was that a problem for you? Like, no, I, I mean, well, yes. I mean, I definitely knew this had to be my next film because I might not have the stomach for it in a few years as I grow softer and softer. <laughs> but, um, no, you know, and like maybe it's just me bullshitting myself, but I think it's more responsible. Right. When, when the audience is gut-punched or just like brutalized by these acts of violence, you know, I think that's better than not giving a flying fuck and watching, again, whoever get killed. I was inspired by Austin Powers. There's a scene when the henchman gets killed and they cut away to the henchman's wife at home and she gets a phone call. And you're like, that's amazing. Like no one ever explores like that these people who die as extras in movies are real too. Right. And same with, you know, I mean, Nazis are low hanging fruit for bad guys in movies. So the goal was to kind of humanize them. Right. And like not, it doesn't feel quite right except for maybe two scenes. But I think, I mean, I think even when you're killing the Nazis in this, it's not like, you know, the, I think any cheering or whatever on the audience part is almost like this catharsis that they experience because it's over rather than like, oh yeah, like, you know, a gory shot from a film, you know, except for maybe like the one-liner of like, oh, you really flabbergasted him or something maybe. Yeah. I don't know. That was the one scene. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's telling a story. You know, it's, it's really designed to be narratively satisfying. And so it's fun to kind of break rules and be artsy and, and be natural. And also, I, I find I gravitate towards just films that I want to watch. And so there has to be some sort of narrative satisfaction to it. And that was the one time in the movie where there's a little bit of a, an actual climax with a high five moment. Right. Because I think we need that sometimes. I also appreciated that a lot of it was practical. Uh, Joe uh, Badiali, Badiali, how do you pronounce Did all the makeup effects? Uh, yeah, well... That's Mike Marino. Oh, okay. And his shop Sorry. at a Jersey. They did an amazing job. My bad. Uh, well, because special effects and special effects makeup are very confusing oh, in yes. credits. Yeah. Um, but they're different departments. One blows shit up and breaks stuff, and one does all the makeup. Oh, okay. But no, it was it was like a great you know. One of the best makeup artists on the East Coast, and uh, it was certainly a makeup show. But there's a lot of also CG compositing there, like. Chris Connolly, my buddy from NYU, does a lot of cleanup and stitching together shots. So there's about 70 visual effects shots in that movie, but the key is that you just don't feel that. Um, it's very important to me. Analog style. Right, as it says in the beginning. Also, I want to talk, talk about, this is a movie, the Blue Ruin, you shot yourself. And the, this movie, you worked with a DP, Sean Porter, who's mm -hmm. shot a lot of films. Uh, what was that transition like for you? Was it hard to give up control over the visual aspect of the film, or? Not on this one. It was, it was a beast, you know? It was like, the hardest part, because Blue Ruin was very much designed to be purely visual, so me looking through the eyepiece and experiencing what's happening through the lens and nudging the camera intuitively, just that's how we told that story. Um, with Green Room, it was insane ensemble coverage and sort of high impact action scenes and pit bulls and things that I needed to really keep watch over that I, I couldn't do kind of having my tunnel vision when I'm obsessed with the camera and the lens. And so I think I picked Sean Porter because he was so versatile and he didn't always put his stamp on a movie. He really was able to acclimate and um, do films like Kamiko the Treasure Hunter, a very formal movie with classic composition and static frames. And it felt like love, which is a very intimate handheld uh, film. And so I, I figured with very naturalistic lighting and I figured he could just sort of um, translate whatever I needed on the screen because he is a chameleon. And um, uh, so I think we can do one audience question. So one. It better be good. It's like a, a speed round. All right. Right there. The question was about uh, balancing the genre aspects uh, in the film. Yeah, no, I, I certainly, I like films that ride a line. And I, I never try to be funny. I just kind of let it happen. 
when I find situations that are absurd or, or tragically human, you know, it's like I can I can find light there and it just kind of pops up. But yeah, it's 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 definitely a balancing act and it's it's what I love. I like and I said this before, but my favorite comedies are Zodiac and uh, Boogie Nights because they're so human and they're so perfect and I laugh out loud and um, I like a good comedy too but it's not hitting that sort of cinematic part of my brain um, but I just try to make it human and, and grounded and something that I want to see that I think might fill a void for audiences. All right, I'm getting the, the, the cutoff signal. Thank you so. very much for showing up. I really Thank appreciate you guys. it. Thank you, Jeremy. Join us in celebrating the remarkable career of Morgan Freeman at the 43rd Annual Chaplin Award Gala on Monday, April 25th. Freeman will be honored by his friends and collaborators, including Helen Mirren, Danny Glover, Robert De Niro, and Matthew Broderick. The annual gala is the Film Society of Lincoln Center's largest fundraising event. Helping to support our ongoing work in education, artist development, and cross-cultural film outreach. Tickets to the star-studded event are now on sale. Visit filmlink.org gala for more information. Louder Than Bombs was a critical favorite at last year's Cannes Film Festival. Stephanie Zaharik praised its intimacy in Time magazine, writing that the film, quote, leaves you with an unshakable sense of having lived with these people for a time, of being drawn in close by their worries and their joys. The Q&A following our sneak preview was moderated by our director of programming, Dennis Lim. Let's go to that now. Um, I'm gonna start with a few, a few questions and then we'll open it up to the audience. Um, since we have both of you here, I thought, I think that's probably a, a burning question um, on the part of the audience. Maybe you could clear up. The, one of the comic high points of the film is the clip of a, a young Gabriel Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought that might be a good place to start. <laughs> Should I start? Well, yeah. It, we wrote in the script, the film is so much about identity and memory and who we were and who we are and how we interpret each other and we thought it would be interesting to have a clip of as it said in the script as it was humbly presented to the great Gabriel Byrne who was the one I wanted for the part but I couldn't write it in the script it said in the script um, a clip um, an old clip of the actor playing Gene as a young, younger person or a younger actor. Uh, and we didn't know what the clip was. And as, as Gabriel, which I'm forever grateful for, accepted the role, we then went deep. We started looking, what would that clip be? <laughs> and we found this wonderful film produced by Disney uh, with uh, Shelley Long. Gabriel plays the young, handsome doctor, as you can see. And uh, Shelley said that it was okay for us to use it. Corbin Bernstein from L.A. Law was in it too. There was this kind of an interesting movie. And yeah, I don't know if you want to add something, but uh, yeah, Disney let us use it, and, and you let us use it. Why, I don't know, but anyway. Uh, no, but it's interesting in the context. I mean, we had a long discussion about this, and I, I didn't know whether, you know, I really wanted to to do that because I felt that maybe it, might take you out of the film or something. But what's interesting to me about it is that, yes, it's a film about memory and who we used to be and who we are now. And um, for th that particular moment for me was uh, poignant because um, we get reminders as we grow older of how we have aged, whether it's a video or a birthday greeting or uh, whatever, and I remember that that was the very first uh, film I ever did when I came to America, and that was 1988, I think. I didn't even know what a suture was. I had to say to the director, what's that word mean, suture? He said, well, it means when you... Anyway, um, so to see myself then and to see myself now, it's like... Uh, it was poignant. And then to have Jesse Eisenberg making fun of the photograph, that was kind of fun too. But it was also, as we do, we tend to get a little sensitive about um, 
um, I suppose how we how we grow older. But um, I think you were very generous and, 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 and nice about the whole thing, to be honest with you. And, and you knew that the two young actors would play your sons mm. laughing at you. I think your instinct as an actor is, is, is to always be very brave, which I admire. And you're always like, okay, if that creates an effect and we can play on that dynamic, then I'll go with it. And I felt that that was what's, what's happening. But there's a scene, I, I should tell them, there, there was a scene that was shot that's not in the film, where Gabriel's character, Gene, watches the clip on his son's computer and discovers the clip. And we, you hadn't seen it since you did it in 1988. Mm -hmm. And we had the camera roll on you oh, as you were watching the clip. And that's a beautiful close-up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it didn't make it into the film for other reasons of dramaturgy and structure. But actually, it's, it's beautiful. I remember saying, after you'd seen it for the first time in that many years, and I said, cut. And you said, that's the worst experience I've had in front of a camera, <laughs> watching that. <laughs> Yeah. You're very brave. Oh, well, thank you. And you're great in that film. I saw the whole film. You're actually very good. God, you know? really? You, you were the other so person who saw it? <laughs> um, yeah, it was one of those daffy kind of romantic Disney comedies, and they put me in as the young doctor that she falls in love with. I mean, I remember there was a dog involved, a cute dog, because it was a Disney <laughs> film. I hated that dog. Yeah. <laughs> But I was supposed to be kind to animals and things. So anyway, let's, can we move off the... We will, uh, we will move on. I... I do have other questions. Um, <laughs> um, let's just uh, maybe step back a bit, and uh, Joachim, you can talk a little bit about you know the decision to make an English language film. You're obviously um, fluent in English, and you studied in London for a time. I know. Was this always something that you had wanted to do? Um, and I'm guess I'm wondering if you were thinking about American cinema as well, and not just about making a film in America, because I feel like this film, among other things, is in conversation with a certain kind of American family drama. Um, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think, long story short, I did a f reprise, which was shown here, that we mm -hmm. mentioned earlier this evening, and uh, there was an interest in me going to uh, America from certain producers to do they gave me a lot of scripts to read that were more conventional stories and reprise is rather experimental in its form and editing and they were, do that reprise thing with this material please. You know, like as, as if it was a spice that I could apply to the food and it would be more exciting or something. I, I, I believe that form and the way you tell something is, is needs to be tied to the theme of what you're telling. So as, as Eskil, my co-writer, who I've written all, all the films I've done with, we were sitting down and thinking, what, what kind of American cinema did we grow up with? What, what, what would be a great film that we could come up with? And we thought that the character-driven, very performance-based uh, tradition of American cinema that, that, that we loved was something we wanted to try our hand on, you know? And I think films like, when I grew up, Kramer versus Kramer, when everyone's parents got divorced, was really relevant. Um, Ordinary People, a great story of grief. Woody Allen movies, particularly the dramas like Interiors or Another Woman. And, and, and even high school films like um, The Breakfast Club by John Hughes were all, you know, great insightful human portraits. And, and um, it turned out, and this is, this is, you know, some of those filmmakers felt that they were connected to Bergman. Robert Redford would speak at length about Bergman when doing, I read old interviews with him when he did Ordinary People. So maybe there is a ping pong between our cultures after all. And the funny thing was I was very inspired by Death of a Salesman for this one. Uh, and the idea, you know, of the, in, in Willie Loam and the patriarchy kind of doing a gender reversal on a father-son story with a more modern father character. And it turns out Arthur Miller, the great American playwright, constantly talks about Ibsen, the Norwegian playwright. So maybe there is more than just Volvos under autumn leaves. There are, maybe there's some, some communication between our cultures that I've, that, that I've grown up on somehow. Mm -hmm. Was this very much a conversation that you had with your actors? Was this something that... I think we talked more about... I don't know. We, we, you guys generously gave, gave time for rehearsals, and we didn't do so much work on the scenes. It was more about talking about character, life experience, getting to know each other, uh, discussing methodology, kind of like how, how do we want to work and stuff. I, how do you feel about it? And, but I, I must say, but Gabriel, you, you are very, very, which I think is great, and that's also why I call you a collaborator. You're not just a, a performer that I employ and you do what's on the page. You, 
you're interested in themes, you care about the content. It seems like you make bold choices in what you want to be in based on is this a story I want to tell? You know, and I think that's a good thing. And not all, all actors are like that. Well, I, I found that, well, Joachim's two previous films, which you haven't seen, I, I, I think um, you should check them out. But um, there were a great many themes in this film that had a resonance, uh, not just for me, but I think for, for many viewers. Like, what does it mean to be a member of a family? Uh, what, what does it mean if one of those family members dies without the benefit or without the blessing of, of, of last words? Where you say, well, I remember she or he said this before they left. In the very, one of the early sequences in the film, the girl talks about, yeah, well, I got to spend some time with her towards the end, and, 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 and that was good. But in this film, all the characters, their grief uh, for most of the film is fractured. They, they live within their individual griefs, and they are haunted by the ghost of the mother. Um, and I think, you know, we're all haunted by ghosts in one form or another. And when I was young, uh, uh, I used to believe that ghosts were scary. Now, now I believe that ghosts are connected to memory. And just like the way the film will click into just a moment, uh, that's how we sometimes remember people or imagine how we um, remember them. I also thought the theme of... Um, the mother who's absent from the family was interesting and the reverse where the man is at home trying to be the mother and the father and that in the end the climax of the film is about how those people are united together their grief is no longer fractured but they are united together in the sense that um, although they must individually suffer their grief, the family, the, the family that's left must, uh, must support them. And I remember somebody saying to me, oh, well, why didn't you use the original ending that you shot, you know, with the baby in the garden and everything? But I think there's something really beautiful and simple about, about the way the camera pulls away onto another road as the car with those three people traveling along goes to wherever they're going. And you realize that what the film has given you is the gift of being with these people for the last hour and a half and understanding them. And it's now time to leave them as they continue in the anonymous stream of, of traffic. And it made me realize that it's, in a way, a kind of a bittersweet ending because how many cars do we see on the freeway? How many people do we see walking who have stories like that? And how do we come to terms with loss and grief and that all things must pass and all people must, must move on out of our lives? How do we deal with that? And I think the film says that the way we deal with that is through the courage and the bravery that love gives us. So maybe we can talk a bit about how you know, some of these themes that you're both talking about relate to the the language of the film. Um, it's, it's a film about a sort of fractured family, but it's also a film that is fractured in its, um, in its form, in a way. Yeah. And um, I'm curious how this read on the page, because actually watching it a second time, which I did like a few days ago, it's, it's quite remarkable just how complicated it is in terms of its um, movement in time and its combination of different registers of reality and reverie and memory, um, you know, and I'm wondering if, if all that was um, already very mapped out at the screenplay stage, and also, you know, Gabriel, how that read to you in terms of a screenplay, because it's remarkably fluid, like how it plays as a film. Thank you. You know, I, um, I, I guess a part of the motivation for any um, story that Eskil and I start writing is to try to find a particular form to express a certain emotion. So like in music, form and emotion are tied together. When you talk about formalism, very often people think you're doing something that's alienating or very artsy-fartsy, experimental. Uh, and, and I believe growing up with alternative music like hip-hop and punk that 
there is a, at the essence of, of, of something is a vibe, a mood, a certain structure. Um, and in cinema at the moment, there's very, very, there, there's certain things, you're, certain rules we're supposed to apply when we make a film. Certain sense of linearity, uh, dramatic tension, transparency um, that, that, of how, you know, you shouldn't feel the cuts and you should be sort of doing it the right way, the proper way. And I don't come from that. I, I'm, I'm interested in how to try to find some sort of, take some risks. So as an example, for example, you, you know, I sit with Eskil one day and we're, we, we come up with this idea, is it possible in a film to have someone read from a book and then have that voice of someone reading um, become the internal monologue of, of someone else thinking? And we put that in a drawer and a couple of months later, we're suddenly realizing we're making a film about an adolescent young man who's infatuated with the girl in class, played by the wonderful Ruby who's here somewhere. And Ruby then reads aloud, and I love your voice, Ruby, and I, I love the way that you made that scene kind of function, and we thought that, you know, okay, so we'll have that, and this is on script stage already, before I know Ruby, before I know the wonderful Devin Drew that plays the young Conrad, you know, and, and we're thinking about how can we make that scene about the mother, thereby in the form of it, making almost an Oedipal connection without saying it explicitly which means you know he's infatuated it's erotic he sees this wonderful girl in class at the same time he thinks about how his mother passed away and we're making a couple of narrative points along the way that we understand he doesn't really know how she died and on top of that we try to add that he thought about playing hide-and-seek with his mother and he realizes as a 15 year old that she must have seen him all along so on the page, some people read that, some of our generous producers believed I could pull that shit off, others didn't, and they did, they're not working on the film. And I pretend that I know how to do it, and we don't know. So Eskel and I do these things, we set it up, and then I'm left alone without my dear friend Eskel to try to make it, figure it out. And, but then we meet the wonderful editor at the end, you know, Olivia Bugacote, who I've worked with for years, and we kind of find a way to make it work. But I like to take a risk with this stuff, and I think that filmmakers should, we, are, we should be responsible right now and, and, and push cinema a little bit forward every time, because everyone's talking about the death of cinema, and everyone's working in TV, and television's wonderful, yes, but, but we can do, still do fun stuff, I think, with the movies. So how do they read? <laughs> well, um, I was just going to say that one, I, I think one of the hallmarks of a great director <clears throat> is that they can deal with the most, the most profound um, uh, uh, subject matter and make it look very simple. It's like the way a great footballer uh, can make soccer actually look easy and you go out of the park and you think, oh, I could do that too. But if you look at this film, it's very, it looks like it's very simply done, but the simplicity is a, comes as the result of a lot of conversation and a lot of elimination of choices to go for that particular choice. It's not that it's, that it's random. And I, I was really struck by the portrayal of the adolescent there because I came away from that film saying, now, now I know where adolescents go when they go up to their rooms at 11 years of age and come out at 22. I kind of have an idea what they're at. And that secret world of, of adolescence that's also uh, made more inaccessible for adults through technology. And our attempts to try to reach them through technology, which they, which they kind of resent. But um, if... It, one of the things that strikes me about the film is that, and I don't know if this is particularly true so much of American film today, but it's certainly true of European film, that the risks that um, Joachim is talking about, for example, in that shot of Isabelle Huppert that lasts forever, it seems, and, and you're just mesmerized by this woman looking out of a mirror or just looking straight into you. A lot of directors and a lot of editors would have cut long before that, but the power of it is the length of it on the screen. And, and the way that car crash was filmed, it was beautiful and horrific. Um, and there were moments of pure poetry, I thought, in it. And yet at the same time, uh, it tells this linear story and at the same time fractures off into all kinds of different realities. It read on the play on the page as utter simplicity. But I know that it took a long time to get there, didn't it? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, we're very slow, I'm afraid, when we, when we write. But what we also do, which I should mention, if there are people here who, who make movies and are maybe curious about the process, we, we, uh, we also write out the scenes for shooting linearly so that we can collaborate and discuss the beats and the moments and try to stay true. Because I don't believe an actor should act the cut. You know, that's, that's not your job. Uh, and you should be allowed to focus on the content of, of the dynamics of the relationships. So, there's a screenplay, then there are individual pages for shooting, and then we're back to the idea of the screenplay in the editing process. It's interesting that you know your first film, Reprise, which Gabriel mentioned, um, also has a lot of this sort of same spirit of formal experimentation of like leaping back and forth in time and shifting perspectives. And, and, and I feel like in that film, it's so clearly tied to this idea of the restlessness of being young and you know like open to the world and excited and anxious about the future and and I feel like in this film you use some of the similar devices but it plays so differently because here all these devices then become about this this obsessiveness that sets in around loss and mourning and like this sense of re repetition um, and circularity um, so I mean, I, I, it's it's something that uh, seems interesting that you're using like similar formal devices, but for a film that feels so different. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I guess we were trying to talk about the mosaic or the fragmentation of a family where there, there are silences, gaps, unspoken uh, sort of spaces between the characters and try to find a way to be intimate with each of them. And the drama would not come out of this idea of, of an, a, a, an antagonist. I don't know quite, I, I'm even having difficulties pronouncing it. <laughs> I don't know how to write antagonist. I, I really love all the characters when we write. And I'm always worried that we have to come up with a bad person to create conflicts. And I think that what, what, what is wonderful is that the actors are, uh, were able to create uh, dramatic tension without any of them having to play bad people. You know, and that's what I'm kind of interested in. But I think that the form helps that because we, for example, see Gabriel and, and, and Devin's character, the, the father and the son, experience the same moments of, you know, the father following the, the youngest brother. And we see it from a different perspective and we see the care of a father, yet we see the humiliation of the son. And we couldn't have done that without certain formal choices. So, so that was kind of a, the fun thing for me in putting it, this together. I'd also say that Joachim, uh, as, a, as a director of actors, is, is exceptional. A lot of film directors uh, are either intimidated or don't understand or sometimes don't care about uh, the process of, of acting. But Joachim has an instinctive understanding of it, where just like the script is reduced to its simplicities, he reduces the acting performances to their simplicities. And I remember there's this, the scene with David Strathairn at the end where I found out that he's having an affair with uh, my w wife who's dead. I had a very different approach to that and I thought, well, why, why would I not be upset there? I remember saying to Joachim, you know, this is something you find out. Uh, it's about betrayal and, 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 and so forth. And he said, no. It's, it, and he made me do the scene in a very simple way, which when I look on it now is absolutely, absolutely right. I don't think there's any fake moments of drama in the film or any fake moments to cut to where you kind of give the audience a little jolt. Um, it's, I think the acting helps through Joachim's direction to illuminate human behavior. It's a very good film about human behavior in its, in its tiny moments. Moments where Jesse Eisenberg, for example, is alone in that elevator and then sees that girl. And um, The film is full of moments like that, full of humanity. Thank you, I'm blushing here now. Thank you, Gabriel. Just one more question before I open it up then. Maybe you could talk a bit about, um, you know, it's a film that I think Gabriel was talking about your direction of actors, but I think it is so dependent on having the right actors, which you really seem to for like every part in this film. Isabel Huppert and you know, Jesse Eisenberg and, and Devin Druid, who many of us know as the young uh, teenage uh, Louis, of course. And um, yeah, can you talk about just putting this ensemble together? I mean, it's such, it really is a true ensemble piece, I think. 
No, I agree with you. I, uh, this, is, this was a thrill. I, I'm serious about what I said earlier. I, it's one of the motivations for doing this film was to be allowed to work with amazing actresses like these. And I, I, I seriously, I, I'm very naive. I, <laughs> I, and I guess this is what we, we talked about this. We need to sustain our naivete in this business because there's the cats, the, the, the cards are stacked against us. The, the cats are stacked against us. I'm sorry, I was about to say something weird there. Uh, <laughs> who are the cats? Uh, the cards. I mean, you know, it's it's weird. It's a bit uphill to do movies, and it's hard to finance film these days. And and certain studios, for example, this is not a studio film. Would, for example, suggest that you work with one of the three more most famous actors at that moment in in time to be able to do your film. And and I I always come at it like, who's best for the role? You know, that's that should be the spirit. And I'm, and 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 I think everyone that worked on the film agreed about you know like we should go for who's best and. And Gabriel was was top of the list, and you know I, I was looking for someone like who could be an intelligent, really smart, uh, yet have a sense of humor kind of late twenties, you know Jesse Eisenberg and Isabel I knew from before, and I was I, I really wanted to work with her because she had seen Oslo August thirty first and was very generous to talk to me, and you know so so suddenly we started looking, and we, it was this kind of okay. Gabriel can be married to Isabel, that makes sense. Jesse could be the son, but who the hell is going to play the little brother with these, the best actors, in my opinion, in the world? So my main worry going into this was like, who's, who's going to be Conrad, you know, a 15-year-old? And in America, there is this tradition of casting 32-year-olds with squeaky voices. <laughs> You know, like uh, <laughs> high school movies. And, uh, you know, even though I love John Hughes, he didn't do that. But certain other directors of that era did. Um, but the wonderful Laura Rosenthal, the, the casting director, understood and read me because she's good with people and she let me meet 200 people and feel slightly devastated and then said, I, I got something you got to meet, you know, someone. And it was Devin Druitt and he was remarkable, I think. And I, I'm so curious to see what he's, he's going to do now. And I think he kind of was the last puzzle. And then you started looking like a family because that was something else. I couldn't just choose the best actor. You, you kind of had to make sense genetically, so to speak. But I think you all found your dynamic very well, actually. How, how, how did you experience that? I remember the first rehearsals with Jesse, for example. He was really playing that kind of uh, on top of himself, young uh, son. And, and you were trying to be the caring father. And you, were, you found the dynamic pretty quickly, I found. Yeah, Jesse has a strange kind of vibe, you know. And, um, well, you, you know, he's Lex Luthor now. I can't, I'm looking at the thing and I'm thinking, my God, where's Batman and Superman? But he's... Um, yeah, he had a strange energy, but a very, uh, a very intriguing energy too. And so did Devin. And I thought it was absolutely right for two people, uh, two kids who were, who were uh, beset by this grief. But I also thought the portrayal of the rest of the young people in the in the cast was also superb. Like Ruby's performance was fantastic, and really believable. And you really felt, God, I remember thinking, I wish I'd met somebody like her when I was 15. <laughs> They'd take in the thing from the door and be walk home in the evening with me and say, yeah, I hope it went well. I hope they, hope they kept on. That's what I thought at the end of the film. But, um, you know, um, it's very delicate because if the chemistry is wrong, the family cannot look like they're real. But Isabelle Huppert was for somebody like you, like, like you. She was one of my favorite actresses in the world, and I thought, well, to work with her would be amazing. And um, there's a part of an actor's brain. You're, of course, you're involved in the scene, and of course you're doing thing. You're listening and you're reacting and so forth. But there's a little little man that sits in a little room in the back of your brain that says, "That's Isabelle Huppert." <laughs> yeah, I have that little man too. <laughs> All right, we'll take a few questions from the audience. Let's start in the back. Yep. Just repeat in case people didn't hear it. Question is about the photos in the film, um, Isabel's photos, and integrating yeah. them in the film. I, I did a lot of research and met a lot of war or conflict photographers, um, and I. I discovered that what I was most interested in, which I also think is about Isabel's character, uh, is the more contemplative, slow journalistic, humanist tradition of, of looking at people in these terrible situations in their lives with, with a certain kind of 
respect, I would say, and, and insightfulness. So I, I looked at a lot of war photographs, and I, I re through that period of while we were writing the script, I realized that we can get very blasé about all the images that strike us uh, through the media and in our lives now, the immediacy of, of, of grief and ter terrible things that happen. But a, a good photograph actually has an effect. And it was kind of a tough period in, in my life, actually, spending time with these photos, because it's, it's really, they do convey something, uh, a, a truth, a, a, a sense of being, witnessing something uh, of importance and insight. Uh, we, we used uh, photos from, amongst other, the, the French photographer, Alexandra Boulat, and uh, some others like Paolo Pellegrin and, and Peter van Achtmiles, uh, very generously these people let us use their photos. Um, and I think that th it was interesting because I learned something as a director from, from, from studying this, as, as she's talking about in the film Isabel's character, the, the idea that, you know, how do you look at the human experience of grief? Do you treat it like an example? Or do you treat it like an individual experience? Do you want to make a cliche to make a bigger point? Or are you actually looking at an individual ex person's experience? And these questions are sort of eternal and big. And I, I just, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. But I also want to add that um, we all, we're also making a story of a mother who is, has an addictive personality. Uh, and uh, several of the, the photographers we talked to, one of them, uh, a, a female war photographer, said that she felt both uh, very selfless in her work, but also very selfish. And the dichotomy of, of going out there and doing these things is kind of a kick they get as well, which is not only healthy, even though they do virtuous work. So I was interested in exploring that, that, uh, that type of a character. Yes. Uh, question about ghosts and memory, and whether there is a Norwegian connection. Ibsen. Are there? Yeah, there are some ghosts in Ibsen. Absolutely. Um, yeah. What can I say about that? I, I grew up uh, being a big fan of Knut Hamsun more than I was of Ibsen, but I do have read many of his plays, and I, I try to. It's strange, you know. I'm a very, my grandfather was a filmmaker of um, of a different generation, a generation that felt that film was an art form to arrive late on the scene and was somehow treated inferiorly to literature and theater and wanted to find pure cinema. And I think I, I have a bit of that in me. I, I seldom quote, even though I just did today with Death of a Salesman, I seldom quote um, stage plays as an inspiration. But I, I guess something like Rosmer's Holm by Ibsen has a, that sense of, 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 of an absent woman and the implication and aftermath. And I'm sure stuff have sifted through my, my childhood and education in the Norwegian school system about Ibsen. So, no, it's a relevant question. I'm afraid I'm not able to really give you a more, more, more specific answer than that. Question about just the idea of children of artists, obviously. Jean's character having been an actor and, and, and Isabel as a photographer. I, I guess I'm a bit of a sort of a believer in the notion of, as I think many people are in our culture, of, of the need for, for children and, and all of us throughout our life to gain some sense of autonomy <laughs> and individuality away from our parents, yet that's a terribly complicated thing in life, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's devastating to read Freud who says that mothers are created to be abandoned. <laughs> It's heartbreaking, and you know these things are. are I, I think of relationships and family as renegotiating things time and time again. I get so what you were asking, if I understand your question, is is that having cool parents, uh, having parents that understand music or are in the arts, as you say, uh, can create a certain sense of symbiosis with with kids. But what I then found interesting was to explore ga gamer kids. We talked a lot about this, uh, Gabriel and I, and and Devin, who plays Conrad is a bit of a gamer. He sits online at night and has friends in, in New Zealand or even Norway probably like that he games with at strange hours of the night, you know. And, and that's um, a different type of rebellion that we're, we're, we're seeing these days, which is not about creating it in, um, like, like, like my generation or Gabriel, we would probably create a, a, a strange guitar sound that would piss off our dads. But now it's not about that because dad loves that strange guitar sound. And 
the kids create an alternate world, an alternate universe with avatars and a different sense of reality altogether that we see sort of comically dad try to enter into. And, and which, so there, are, there is something about generations right now and, and that I find kind of interesting, yeah. Well, I just, you know, that's, I think that's a really interesting question because, um, you know, that, that quotation from Freud, I mean, the Buddhists have a, have a, have a, um, a, a dictate which is that a child's first step is a step away from you. In other, in other words, the recognition that the, the, the job of the parent is to see the child into adulthood and not to try to hold on to them. But I think children, no matter how much they rebel against their parents, they want to keep them private within the four walls of the house. What fame does is it projects the parents out into the entire world. And for children who are the, you know, who have parents who are um, famous or, you know, w well known, it creates a dilemma because your parent is your private parent, but everybody else knows them. So it's conflicting for the child. Like, what is the job of the parent? The job of the parent is to be the parent, not to be somebody that everybody in the entire world can have a part of. Because if you as a child can't claim your own parent, like what can you really claim? And when that parent is sent out there in many shapes and forms, I, not to mention anything, but it's just, it just reminded me at the moment, um, uh, there's a, a, a famous singer at the moment who's having a problem with her kid who's now said, I don't want to live with you anymore, I want to live with my father. And she has to go through the public um, drama of trying to get her child to come back to her. Or the father has to go through the drama of trying to get the child to stay with him. But in the middle is the child probably having really conflicted emotions about who his, who his mother is. Uh, who his mother is and in this film these kids have a famous mother who's a photographer who's been taken from them by war and by her job and she's famous she gets articles written about her in the New York Times and um, so getting to know your parents if you ever really do get to know your parents I don't know if you do but uh, getting to know them privately is a hell of a job. Getting to know them in the public sphere is even more uh, tor torturous. And it's a really good question. And that makes sense in a way of that, of that scene you're talking about because it's a rejection of him as that. I don't want you to be that. I want you to be my father. Nothing, I don't want you to be anybody like, that's available to the world. Does that, does that kind of, yeah. It was a long-winded answer, but you know. There's a question about the recurring theme of addiction in Joachim's films. Yeah, uh, I think that Oslo, August 31st, and this film are companion pieces in some sense. Um, one is a very intimate portrait of someone who's lost in, in a sense of uh, narcissistic depression, to, to say it in a very crude way. And, and this one, I guess, is dealing with the aftermath and the surroundings. But I do, I do feel very close to the characters that, 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 that do not sustain their life in both films, uh, in the sense that um, I think most people that, are, are, are that, that do something creative are very, like, I, it's, it's difficult to talk about, but you know, a lot, okay, so put it this way, a lot of directors that maybe in their 50s or 60s often make the film about the cop or the robber that is so addicted to their job that they can't deal with the family. You know, a wonderful film I love, like Heat by Michael Mann is about dysfunctional families. And, Al Pacino says, I, I gotta sustain my edge, you know, I, I can't be with you, he says to his wife, and, you know, I, I gotta find the cop, and, you know, it's, it's I, I know I gotta find the robber, you know, he finds Rob De Niro, he, Rob De Niro has the same problem, so they bond, there we are, you know. I, I'm trying to kind of do a different version of the, 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 the difficult dichotomy of life and art and trying to sustain relationships in the middle of being ambitious, or not even ambitious as, as, as a sense of fame or attention, but just because that's what you know how to do. That's how you're coping with your problems, your time, your sense of self-worth, all that stuff. I know a lot of people like that, so I, I care about that. Then 
yeah, I've made some quite melancholic existential portraits, and, and that's for many private reasons, and also for reasons of, of uh, I, I don't know, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel, but, you know, when I was a kid, I understood that life is short, and I'm an atheist, and, you know, <laughs> what do we do with our time? It's, I, I care. It, it's what I think about all the time, and, and, and it's, it's that pressure, and the, the weight of time sometimes is, can be almost unbearable. But um, I think through making films, life feels pretty good at the moment. So I'm optimistic. I hope this film also shows, as, as to answer your question more specifically, that in the continuation of what I do, I think this is perhaps my most optimistic film so far. So uh, the next one is going to be about something slightly different, I think. But thank you for your question. We have time for a final question. If there are, yes. I guess you sort of already touched on this, but yeah. like, are there personal experience that informed yes, these films? Yes, se several, but I'll tell you what, th here's my th take on it. I, I'm interested in the amazing opportunity I'm feeling right now, sitting here with you and having done something I've worked on for six years, where I express in much more, a much more contemplative way and, and in a much more crafty way where I'm able to control the ambivalence and the complexity of my statement, how I talk about what I really care about personally than I am in, in talking about my private life. And maybe I'm old fashioned that way. And I know we, and I, I, I'm not insinuating that you, you're digging into my private life by your question. It's a relevant one. Yes, this comes from many things and, and that process is rather chaotic. I actually, you know, some things are transferred from an experience of family, yet when my parents see this film, they, they're moved by it and they don't feel attacked by, oh, this is my father or this is my mother or, you know, it's, this, this stuff is complicated. We're two people writing and the wonderful thing is I write with one of my best friends, Eskil Fucht. And we're both real film nerds, but we're also really good friends for more than 20 years. So it, we sit and we talk and we share our thoughts on life and experiences and stuff sifts out. And sometimes we come up with an idea we both love. We write it down and at the premiere of the film, someone comes up to us and says, oh my God, this moved me because of a personal experience. And we look at each other shit, yeah, this is also very personal to us. We didn't really realize. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a process of discovery. It's not as I set out to portray something specific from my biographical experience. It's, it's a chaotic process, and I'd love to keep staying like that, chaotic. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for, but... Uh, Thank you. Way. Thank you both for being here. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>